3650 Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Thursday, September 16th, 2010. KH 3650 Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Thursday, September 16th, 2010. Oxidative Phosphorylation, Part 2. Any questions, issues, problems? Anything? Okay, uh, don't forget lab tomorrow. You do have a lab activity tomorrow, okay? So you need to make sure and bring appropriate clothing for only 30 seconds of exercise. It'll be, it'll be easy. Well, it'll be short. Okay, um, and your lab reports are due tomorrow, right? No? Oh, he hasn't given them back, giving it, okay. Okay. Just, just checking to make sure you're listening. All right, so what happens is you should be getting your lab, your initial lab report back tomorrow that will have comments and edits and you'll have an opportunity to rewrite it and resubmit it along with your uh, uh, write-up for the lab that you're doing tomorrow. Does that make sense? Is that better? Okay. All right. When we finished last time, we were talking about um, oxidative phosphorylation, our aerobic energy system. And we were basically exploring the, it's, we were basically exploring it, our, the body's maximal capacity to consume oxygen, okay? Uh, and so we walked through this concept or this idea of VO2 max, or maximal oxygen consumption. Don't mistake this with this next section we're going to talk about because essentially we're looking at gradually increasing exercise intensity up to some point that the person can't go any further and you see oxygen consumption continually go up and up and up until the point that it doesn't go up any further. So you, you get to some maximum. What we're going to talk about next is some, some level of exercise intensity that is below that sub-maximal exercise intensity. So it could be everything from just walking down the sidewalk, you know, walking to your next class. It could be going out for a, you know, a, a three-mile jog for exercise, or it could be running a 10-kilometer race uh, as quickly as you can to get from the start line to the finish line, okay? So something that is sub-maximal exercise intensity. So typically what would happen would be we'll look at this exercise over some period of time and we'll look at what happens to oxygen consumption. The first thing we're going to look at here is what happens to oxygen consumption when the person just sits at rest. And you'll be, not this Friday's, but I think next Friday's lab, where you'll be doing exactly this. You basically hook that person up to the metabolic cart and you have them just sit there at rest and you're going to have to consume some amount of oxygen because you use oxidative phosphorylation to produce ATP predominantly to keep your body alive and, and functioning properly at rest. Um, what was that average resting oxygen consumption? No, close. 3.5. 3.5 milliliters, mLs per kg per minute milliliters of oxygen for every kilogram of body weight every minute, 3.5. That's that sort of general average, okay? Our, our sort, uh, sort of mythical average person, that's their typical resting oxygen consumption. As we can see right here, it's 
uh, this person is just sitting at rest. This was uh, data from one of the labs that we did. And this person is just sitting on a stool on the treadmill, uh, not doing anything. Now we can see their oxygen consumption. We measured it over five minutes, and um, it's pretty steady. It's, it's probably a little above 3.5 because they're not really truly at rest. They're, they're sitting upright on a stool, and they're just getting ready to do some treadmill activity, so they're probably geared up a little bit. But nonetheless, it's, it's, it's pretty steady. Okay? Actually, this, this lab was somebody sitting on a cycle ergometer, not a treadmill, because we then asked them to pedal at 150 watts. Okay? Uh, that's a power output uh, or a work output rate uh, on a cycle ergometer. Anybody have a sense of 150 watts? Is that easy? Is that hard? Is that, where is that? Well, it depends. If you were completely untrained and not used to riding a bike, that would probably be a little bit on the hardish side, not real hard. If somebody's a pretty well-trained cyclist, 150 watts is pretty easy, probably a warm-up for them. As it turned out, the subject for this particular uh, 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 demonstration is a pretty well-trained cyclist, so 150 watts is pretty much a warm-up. So scenario, person sitting on an exercise bike, you say go, they start pedaling, and they start pedaling with, with, the, with the work output set at 150 watts on that stationary bike. So here's what happens over the next five minutes. His oxygen consumption climbs, 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 and then starts to level off. Okay? So, at this point up here, let's forget to do this. At this point up here, that's a highlight. Let's go back and do felt it. There we go. Okay. If, and for the purposes of time, we only had the person ride at 150 watts for five minutes. But if this guy had ridden for 10 minutes, 15, 20, whatever, uh, you know, maybe out to an hour or so, and we kept it right at 150 watts, this would have been pretty steady. There would have been a slight variations, but this is the part that we would call steady state. Okay, steady state, where the person rides at a steady intensity, the body has increased its oxygen consumption to a level that will replace ATP to meet the demand of that particular activity. Okay? So oxygen consumption is providing the predominant amount of energy to produce ATP to exercise at that intensity. All right. But here's what's kind of interesting. He started riding here at 150 watts. And so right off the bat, he's riding at 150 watts, but his oxygen consumption takes some time to get up to that level. Okay? So there's a period of time right in here that we might represent by this area right here that we know the energy demand is what's needed to ride at 150 watts, but his oxygen consumption is not up there yet so where is he getting the energy to ride at 150 watts if, say, at this point, oxygen consumption is only providing 50% of that energy? Where is the other 50% coming from? It, it's it's got to come from our other energy systems, okay, anaerobic energy systems, and those would be specifically then what? 
creatine phosphate and said glycolysis earlier. Okay? So, in effect, early on in this exercise, oxygen consumption doesn't meet our energy needs fast enough, so we've got to get that ATP energy from somewhere else. First of all, why does oxygen consumption take so long? And in this case, what's that? One, two, looks like it took about three minutes, even though this is a pretty modest exercise intensity for this person. Why does it take so long for oxygen consumption to provide all the energy that we need? <clears throat> What's that? It's, it's slow. It's slow. Why is it slow? A lot of steps. What else? A lot of chemical steps that we saw. What else? What else do you have to do with this aerobic energy process besides just the chemical steps of glycolysis, Krebs cycle, and electron transport chain? What else do you got to do? Get oxygen. Get oxygen. And you got to get it from where? Out here. You got to get it from the air. You got to basically get these oxygen molecules that you need to do this. You got to get them from out here into mitochondria in the muscles. Okay? So that takes some time to do. So there is a bit of a lag time. But fortunately, we've got these other energy systems that we can use to rephosphorylate ATP to, to meet this energy need. Okay? So that's good. Then. We're going to have the person, so this is where they started. So now the person is, has been exercising at 150 watts for some period of time, and now we're going to have them stop. So right here, we're just going to have them stop exercising. All right, so that's rest, and here's what happens. Okay, so oxygen consumption falls fairly quickly at first, and then returns back down to... This looks like it's right back down to its uh, uh, original level, okay? But did our oxygen consumption, we're, now we're not doing anything. We're just sitting on the bike, so what's our work output? Zero, okay? How come our oxygen consumption didn't fall all the way back down to resting immediately? We don't, we don't need the energy. It's not the remaining pace because we're, we're not exercising anymore. We've stopped. Somebody was saying something over here. Okay, it's kind of on the right idea. You still got some CO2 you got to get rid of. So you've been producing CO2, so we want to keep blood circulation up to get those CO2 circulated back around to the lungs. We want to keep respiration up to keep blowing off that carbon dioxide, right? Okay? Now, um, so basically what happens is we've got this. So we got this little period of time now, like right in here. And in this case, even though we have quit exercising, our oxygen consumption remains elevated, even though we're just sitting there perfectly at rest. It's slowing down, but it takes some period of time. And in this case, it takes us one, two, three, four, you know, somewhere between four and five minutes for our oxygen consumption to get back down to what it was at rest. Okay? So it stays elevated for some period of time even after we've exercised. Well, if we have borrowed some ATP energy from over here, when you borrow, what do you create? 
you create debt, and in fact, initially when you borrow, you don't create debt, you create a deficit. In this area, sort of the old description and old norm, uh, nomenclature of this area right here is called the oxygen deficit. Okay, the oxygen deficit. We've had to borrow ATP energy from our anaerobic energy systems because we couldn't meet that energy need immediately from our aerobic energy source. Okay. Uh, I'll describe the, so, or give you an illustration of, that may describe the difference between a uh, uh, deficit and a debt. When I was in uh, grad school, uh, one of the things I had gotten interested in was doing triathlons. And to do a triathlon, you need a bike. So I made the big mistake, even though I was a, uh, uh, a poor graduate student, I made the mistake of going to the bike store. Go in the bike store, there it is, the perfect bike. <laughs> Candy apple red, triathlon bikes, awesome. I'm a poor graduate student. I have no money in my wallet. I have no money in my checking account. Bummer, right? What did I have in my wallet? Pulled out one of these things. And, of course, in those days, it, was, it, it wasn't zip, zip. It was cha-chunk, you know. You know. <laughs> yeah. And when I was in grad school, I kind of wore the numbers down. Uh, this is a true story. Chachunk rode that bike home. It was great. I was the happiest guy for 28 days. Ah, because for 28 days, the next month, life was great. I, I had the bike I wanted, and all I had done was create a deficit, which, you know, if you ask the federal government, as you know, is not a big deal. <laughs> right? A deficit is not a problem until what happens? The bill comes in. And then when the bill comes in, what do you have to do? You have to pay it back. Okay? So, uh, and as it turns out with this bike, and as you all probably know, the retail cost of the bike that I paid with the credit card, is that the amount that I paid back when I got done? No. Why not? You're assuming I didn't pay it all back on the, when the bill came in. <laughs> you would have assumed correctly. It was probably the most expensive bike in the history of uh, triathlons because it took me probably five years to pay off this bike. So there's interest associated with uh, uh, paying things back uh, when you borrow. Okay. So what we have done here, we have borrowed ATP energy from creatine phosphate and from glycolysis. Okay, we've borrowed ATP energy from those two energy systems. Once we get up to steady state, then we're fine. We can pay our own way, right? Oxidative phosphorylation can pay its own way because it's, it's, it's rephosphorylating enough ATP for whatever the level of, of exercise intensity is. But then when you stop exercising, the bill has now come due. And in, in, instead of being able to sit there perfectly at rest, your metabolic system, your oxidative phosphorylation system, has to keep working for some period of time in order to pay back the ATP energy that you borrowed from creatine phosphate and glycolysis. Okay? Now, how specifically does oxidative phosphorylation pay back creatine phosphate? 
When we use creatine phosphate, what's the energy reaction that happens? We've got creatine phosphate stored in the muscle, right? Yeah. And it does what? It gives energy and phosphate to ADP to reform. And what's left? Not lactate. We're not to, not there yet. What's left? No, not pyruvate. We're still at we're creatine phosphate. Creatine phosphate gives phosphate to ADP, and what's left? Creatine. That creatine molecule, how did we get it back to creatine phosphate? Where did it go? Where did it get the energy? Mitochondria. Okay, creatine shuttle. Ring some bells. Creatine molecule goes to the mitochondria, which has revved up ATP production by what means? Electron transport. Krebs cycle, so in other words, by oxidative phosphorylation. We've revved up aerobic metabolism to take that creatine, give it back energy and phosphate to restore it to creatine phosphate. Okay? And to do that, you've got to keep your aerobic metabolism elevated some. Okay? So that's part of what's keeping this elevated. Right? Now let's move on to glycolysis. If we use glycolysis and we take glucose down to pyruvate and pyruvate to lactate, what happens to the lactate molecules? What happens to the lactate molecules that are in the muscle? They go out where? Into the blood. They get circulated around. And then what happens to them? Taken out by what? Liver, heart, kidneys, slow twitch muscle fiber. And what do those tissues do with the lactate? They push it backwards to pyruvate and do what with it? Push it down. Yeah, you're thinking of the, 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 uh, the, the uh, diagram, right? So push it backwards to pyruvate and then do what with it? Push it down into where? Mitochondria. Into the Krebs cycle, electron transport chain. So we oxidize lactate. Right? Because we take lactate and we push it back to pyruvate into the mitochondria and oxidize it in the Krebs cycle. And so we get rid of lactate by metabolizing it with the aerobic energy system. Okay? Uh, early studies of this used to try to match, and that's, picture's gotten pretty ugly. Let me see if I got another one here. Let me jump ahead. Early studies tried to match the area under the curve here with the area under the curve here. That however much you borrowed, however much you were lacking at the beginning, you paid back at the end. But as we all know with the credit card example, you wind up paying back more than you spent than you borrowed initially. So in general, what happens is the oxygen consumption stays elevated after exercise a little bit longer because there's some additional uh, physiological uh, interest we have to pay. Okay? And we'll, I'll talk about those in, in just a minute. Alright, so this is what's called our, our classic oxygen debt and deficit curve. Okay? Oxygen deficit, so we've borrowed, and oxygen debt which is uh, when it's the bill is due and we've got to pay it back. 
Now, if we have this person, so here's our curve where the guy was riding at 150 watts. Uh, now we're going to ask him to ride at 300 watts. All right? How's what? What's his oxygen consumption going to do for the first five minutes at rest? Probably should. Hopefully, should be the same. Okay. Um, so here's his response when we ask him to ride at 300 watts. The exercise intensity is much higher, so you need more ATP because the, you've, you've got to put forth a lot more force, requires a lot more energy to pedal at twice the intensity. Uh, so that's going to require oxygen consumption to go up to a much higher level. And in fact, it does. It goes up to a you know, level that's... So what's that? It's about 30 mLs per kg. This is about 53, 54. Okay? So it goes up to a substantially higher level. Um, one of the other things that you tend to see is it typically takes longer. And in fact, we're not even really sure that this guy's in a steady state, right? Yet. Because it's gone up, 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 up. It's starting to level out, but we don't even really know yet if he's got it at a good steady state yet. Okay? So if we probably, you know, this athlete was a, is a pretty good cyclist, so 300 watts is, is uh, uh, he can handle that. So if we had him ride for three or four or five more minutes, we probably would have seen a good steady state. But instead of hitting a steady state in three minutes, it looks by five minutes he's probably just barely getting there. So when the exercise intensity is higher, it typically takes longer to get to a steady state. Okay? So it creates a bigger It creates a bigger deficit. If exercise intensity is higher, it takes longer to get to a steady state, bigger deficit. So then what does that tell us about the post-exercise oxygen consumption? It's going to be more, right? More total oxygen consumption. If, if the bike costs 500 bucks, you know, and, and you have to pay back 500 plus some interest. That's going to take you, you know, some time. If the bike costs $1,000, it's going to take you maybe twice as much or longer to pay it back, right? So same thing happens here. Is the, if the deficit, if the intensity is higher, the deficit is bigger, and therefore your oxygen consumption stays higher for longer even after you stopped exercising, Okay. And you all know this, you know, you, you've uh, uh, gone, done a workout, cooled down, you go take a shower, you get dressed, and then you come to class and you sit in class and what happens? You're still sweating, okay? Your, your body temperature is elevated, so your body is still working at getting rid of some of that heat that you've produced, okay? You've, your body has released some hormones like epinephrine and norepinephrine that have geared up your metabolism and you've got to metabolize those hormones before they'll stop keeping your body's metabolism revved up. Even though you've cooled down, your heart rate is still a little bit elevated, your respiration is still a little bit elevated so that you can continue to circulate blood to move lactate, carbon dioxide through the system. So this is the physiological interest you have to pay back when you get done. It's not just a matter of borrowing ATP and paying back ATP. There's some interest that's involved as well. Okay? But by and large, even after fairly intense exercise, you know, within 10, 20, 
maybe 30 minutes, depending on the intensity of the exercise. Most people, are, their oxygen consumption is back down to a level that's not distinguishable from before. Okay? Um, I hear these, these um, have you guys heard these claims all the time for either some certain type of exercise or exercise program or exercise equipment that it keeps your metabolism elevated for 24 or 48 hours even after you stopped exercising? You know, they, they pitch some interval type exercise programs that keeps your metabolism elevated. Um, the thing is, if you're looking at it from an oxygen consumption standpoint, uh, it's pretty much down to a level after at most 25 or 30 minutes that is indistinguishable from, from prior to exercise. Okay? There may be some other things at play that they're talking about, but um, you've got to be careful with those kind of claims. Okay. Um, all right, so that's our oxygen deficit, our steady state. Already talked about the debt portion. Probably, uh, let me, okay. Here is a more contemporary term for this concept uh, uh, as opposed to oxygen debt, uh, deficit and debt. And the, the acronym is EPOC, and that stands for Excess Post-Exercise Oxygen Consumption. Okay? So after you've finished exercise, your oxygen consumption remains elevated and excess over what's needed for resting in order to uh, probably rephosphorylate creatine phosphate and metabolize lactate as well as some of those other things. Okay? If, this is a little hard to tell on this one, but this is somebody who's untrained and somebody who's trained. Okay? If somebody has done aerobic exercise training in particular, uh, they are able to, first of all, they have a larger blood volume, they've got more red blood cells, therefore they carry more oxygen in their body, they're able to deliver that oxygen to those muscles faster. Okay? They also have a greater density of capillaries so that they can get blood flow to those muscle cells more readily and diffuse oxygen into these muscles. Um, so if somebody is trained, they've got an increase in blood volume. Uh, what, what do we carry the majority of oxygen? How do, how do we carry the majority of oxygen in our blood? Hemoglobin. hemoglobin, bound to hemoglobin. As it turns out, they have more red blood cells and they have more hemoglobin. Okay, um, so they're able to carry more oxygen. They have increase in capillaries in muscle. Okay, so that gives us greater blood flow to muscle, greater surface area uh, for diffusing the oxygen molecules from the blood into the muscle. Um, there is a chemical that is in muscle that has a red pigment just like hemoglobin that helps the muscle cell bind and diffuse oxygen. And what would that chemical be called? Myoglobin. 
Okay, we're going to use the. You'll, we've got a couple of different terms associated with muscle. One is myo, another prefix is sarco. In this case, this substance is called myoglobin. You can think of it, it's the equivalent for muscle as hemoglobin is to the blood. Okay, it helps us get oxygen from out here in the blood into the muscle cell and facilitates the movement of oxygen to the mitochondria. Uh, when somebody is aerobically exercise trained, they have an increase in mitochondria, and that's both number and size. If you take somebody who's uh, never done any weight training, and you, you know, stick a dumbbell in their hand and you have them uh, uh, do curls with this dumbbell and over time you increase the amount of weight of the dumbbell, what happens to their bicep? It gets bigger. It hypertrophies. Okay? If you take these mitochondria in these muscle cells and you ask them to produce ATP at a high rate with aerobic exercise over and over and over again, guess what happens to these mitochondria? They get bigger. Okay? They hypertrophy. Okay, so um, uh, muscle cells that you engage in regular aerobic exercise, they will increase both the number of mitochondria and the mitochondria that you have in those muscle cells will hypertrophy. They'll get bigger. Okay, so these are some of the physiological adaptations that will result in muscle cells that are more aerobically trained being able to um, ramp up oxidative phosphorylation faster Therefore, when you, these two people do the exact same exercise, they're sitting on a bike or they're standing on a treadmill and you ask them to do the exact same intensity of exercise, the person who is more aerobically trained will get to that steady state faster. They don't have to borrow as much from creatine phosphate and, and glycolysis. They get to the steady state much faster. The person who is untrained takes them longer and longer to get there. Okay? All right, and this, this is basically the same thing. It's just a, a um, I think it's two editions of the book or something. But it's so here's the trained person getting to the steady state faster. Here's the untrained person taking a longer time to get there. Okay, so here's this excess post exercise oxygen consumption. The majority of what we're doing in keeping our oxidative phosphorylation elevated after exercise is to oxidize lactate molecules that were formed and to rephosphorylate creatine into creatine phosphate. Okay, so creatine shuttle and oxidizing those lactate molecules, both of which require oxygen consumption. Um, We've elevated body temperature some, so we're going to have to work for some period of time to bring body temperature down. Um, we've, we've reduced the amount of oxygen that's carried in, on hemoglobin in the blood and on myoglobin in the muscle, and so some of the oxygen that's consumed, in effect, sort of gets stored, if you will, by bringing our hemoglobin levels back up and our myoglobin levels back up. We talked about elevating certain hormones that keep our metabolism ramped up, like epinephrine, norepinephrine. It takes a while to burn those off and to, for them to stop having that effect on the body. And then our 
cardiovascular system and our pulmonary system is still working to bring in that extra oxygen and circulate it and that requires some energy by the body as well. Okay? So these are all components. You can think of these, this is paying back the principal up here, this is paying back the interest down here. Okay? Um, you know, what will basically have to happen is, you know, the monohydrate, when you consume it, and in effect, and again, it doesn't matter what form you consume it, even if you consume it as creatine phosphate, uh, essentially the phosphate is going to get stripped off as it goes through the, the digestive system. Uh, and creatine is transported through the body as free creatine um, in the blood. And so it's not phosphorylated again until it's taken up into the muscle where it's phosphorylated. So I don't think it really makes a difference in terms of bioavailability. I think there are probably bigger issues related to um, uh, timing of consumption, how much you consume, what you consume it with. Um, and, and again, this, the, the research I'm most familiar with, probably one of the more effective things is to consume it with carbohydrate, get your insulin levels up, which helps the uptake from blood into muscle. So I'm not convinced there's a big difference in some of these different forms that it's actually supplemented or consumed. So, okay. All right. Um, so this is this is the same thing. This is just your book's version of it. I redrew it for, I don't know, bored one day or something. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, another issue with oxygen consumption. And this is, it's sometimes referred to as running efficiency or, or efficient econ efficiency of motion. It could be cycling. It could be other uh, events. Uh, we'll talk about it in relation to running. Uh, it's probably more appropriate to call it running economy. Uh, and essentially the way they do these tests is you can, you can take people that are pretty well matched in terms of their training, uh, their body size, etc., and if you put them on the treadmill and have them run at the exact same speed as somebody else, okay, you may, in this case we're measuring two different people, runner A and runner B, and they're running at, in this case, um, uh, uh, you know, running pace here, a running pace here, and a running pace here, you can hook them up to a metabolic cart and they will actually have slightly different levels of oxygen consumption. Okay, so in effect this runner right here is more economical. Okay, more economical. That is, for any given running pace, they're actually consuming less oxygen. They're, therefore, their cardiovascular system, their pulmonary system, their oxidative phosphorylation energy system doesn't have to work quite as hard at this particular given running pace. And it's probably not that big a deal for short races, but for long endurance events like marathons or triathlons, it can potentially make a big difference. Um, these are probably largely due to biomechanical differences. You know, one person has a, a, a more effective running gait, 
say one person may overstride a little bit, and so when their foot hits, it causes them to slow down a little bit more than the other person that's got a more uh, economical running gait. Um, and so this is one of those things that could potentially cause some differences for athletes. Um, uh, in cycling, we see it. One of the kind of famous lab measures, I guess, of Lance Armstrong in cycling is that he was able to push a higher wattage on the bike while consuming less oxygen and producing less lactate than other athletes, okay? even other you know, elite, world-class, well-trained cyclists. So it gives them some advantage uh, when you're in long races because you're, just, you're not working as hard. Okay? Um, and there are some things that they can do that are sort of skill-based where athletes can work at trying to become more economical uh, and more efficient in their movement. Okay. Um, two other things related to this uh, uh, oxygen consumption uh, responses by the body. And this will be under VO2 drift. Okay, oxygen consumption drift. So far I've talked about steady state. That if you ride or you run at the exact same intensity for some period of time, that, you're, that you'll consume, uh, you know, your body will hit this steady state in terms of the amount of oxygen you'll consume. There, there are some variations of that. One is if exercise becomes particularly prolonged, okay, and in this case I would probably say this is not an hour, you know, this is probably more in the range of two, two hours plus. So this would be somebody sitting on a, you know, on a bike or running on a treadmill or something like that where you've got them running at exactly the same pace, but the longer they run, the more prolonged this activity becomes, their oxygen consumption starts to creep up a little bit. Okay? This is particularly pronounced when the exercise is in a hot and humid environment. And it seems as though what happens is as the body starts to gain more of a heat load and the body temperature rises, then we start to uh, require more energy and a greater oxygen consumption to try to get rid of this extra heat. Okay, So this one seems to be probably a thermoregulatory mechanism. Um, so if you exercise for long periods of time, particularly in hot and humid environments, you may not stay at that steady state, but oxygen consumption ramps up. And what we typically see people do is instead of continuing to run at the pace where their oxygen consumption is higher, what do pe people typically do during a long race when it's hot and humid out? Slow down. They slow down. So their, their running or cycling pace will slow down to, to, to keep that oxygen consumption level at, at the same spot. Okay? So this is how we look at it in the lab because we ask people to ride at the same intensity and we see their intensity, the, the oxygen consumption creeps up over time. In reality, what typically happens in a race is that people will slow down to try to keep their oxygen consumption at the same level, but now they're going at a slower pace. The other thing that tends to happen is there is some point of exercise intensity. Okay, There is some point of exercise intensity. We've looked at this um, you know, where the person's resting, they exercise, and they reach some steady state. We increase the exercise intensity so they get to some steady state. We go to a higher intensity, they get to some steady state. There is some level of intensity that when we ask people to, to run or ride at that intensity, that it is, the intensity is so high 
that they never really reach a steady state. And it keeps going out like this until they eventually fatigue. Okay? So this would be what we would refer to as supra-maximal intensity, which means it's an intensity that's actually greater than their maximal oxygen consumption ability. Okay? That they're, they're going at an intensity that they can't reach a steady state, but their oxygen consumption will keep going up and up and up and up and up. And if they're able to keep running long enough, you know, eventually they're going to fatigue and they'll reach their VO2 max. Oh, like when would somebody use a super maximum? For short, shorter high-intensity races. Like, um, for example, in a 10-kilometer race, endurance race, you're operating, uh, you know, an athlete running at a longer race like that is operating at a very high percentage of their VO2 max, but they haven't gone above their VO2 max. A shorter race, like 1,500 meters, they're actually running at an intensity that uh, you would see, you would see this right here, okay? Because it, in, in a 1,500-meter race, while it is considered a, you know, kind of a middle distance or endurance-oriented race, you have to have a high VO2 max to do well in 1,500 meters, but the pace is fast enough that you're also using a pretty high proportion of glycolysis as well. So it's a very high, it's one that both aerobic metabolism and glycolysis are both turned up pretty high. Okay? So like they're never at a, they're never at a constant rate, they're just always increasing? Probably in a 1500 meter race, if you were able to measure oxygen consumption during a 1500 meter race, they would not be at a steady state. Okay? It would be creeping up, creeping up, creeping up, creeping up, and then they're getting to the finish line, you know, and they have not reached a steady state. Okay? So you mean mostly for long endurance races? Yeah, steady state's going to be, you know, if you're, if you're pushing at a, at a race-type pace intensity, if you go out past 1,500 meters, 3,000 meters, you know, something like that, where, you know, a really good runner, male runner is going to, you know, do that in 15 minutes or so, um, they'll, they'll be at a steady state, okay? So it's somewhere in between uh, that where the intensity is high enough that you can't achieve a steady state in terms of your oxygen consumption, but what's, what's then going to happen in terms of the duration, the length of time you're able going to be able to sustain that intensity? It's going to be decreased. It's going to be short. Okay? You know, that's why when you run 1,500 meters as fast as you can, you can't really go much. You can't just say when you get to the end of 1,500 meters, well, just go ahead and do another 800 meters. Okay? So you, you, you're, you can't, you're not at a steady state. You can't sustain that intensity. You know, you, you've got to slow down. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Now, so far what we have done um, is we have focused solely on glucose and glycogen. And again, remember, I talk a lot about glucose, but remember, most of the time the muscle is going to prefer to use the glycogen that's stored in the muscle. And that's going to become an important issue when we talk uh, uh, about carbohydrates next week. Um, so this part we've seen already. Glucose and glycogen down to pyruvate, pyruvate into the mitochondria, our Krebs cycle, and our electron transport chain. Okay, that part we've seen before. But we can metabolize other nutrients for energy. We can metabolize fats, 
and we can metabolize proteins aerobically for energy as well. Now, and again, make sure you're clear on this point. We can metabolize carbohydrate, glucose or glycogen. We can metabolize it anaerobically, okay, down to pyruvate and pyruvate to lactate. Or we can metabolize carbohydrate aerobically, glucose or glycogen down to pyruvate, and then pyruvate into the Krebs cycle and electron transport chain. So carbohydrate, we can metabolize either anaerobically or aerobically. Now, um, fats, the, the primary, there's a variety of different types of fats that you can eat or consume. There's a variety of different types of fats in the body in terms of the way that it's transported or stored or, or used functionally. The predominant source of fat that we're going to store and use for energy are in the form of triglycerides, and the principal component of a triglyceride is a fatty acid. <coughs> this is an example of one of the fatty acids that the body will commonly break down and metabolize for energy, and it's palmitic acid or palmitate. Okay. Um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll really get into this more on uh, Tuesday. But basically what happens is uh, we've, we store these fats in various places. We can store these triglycerides either in muscle or we can store these triglycerides in fat cells or adipocytes in different areas around the body. We break these triglycerides down. And in fact, this, this triglyceride is a glycerol molecule glycerol molecule, and then there are three fatty acids. So what we'll do is we'll break down these triglycerides and, and take one of these fatty acids. It can be transported through the muscle cell, through the mitochondria, we take it, and you can see I've got it down here inside the mitochondria. We pull this fatty acid into the mitochondria, and we send it through a series of chemical reactions called beta-oxidation. And basically what happens is we convert it to units of acetyl-CoA. Okay? So um, if we take these fatty acids, and palmitate is an example, uh, first of all, if we take glucose and we completely metabolize it aerobically, how many ATPs did we get? Aerobically. 36. Two if you go to lactate. If you metabolize it aerobically, you get 36. Okay? If you take this one fatty acid, palmitate, this one fatty acid molecule, and completely metabolize it aerobically, you get 129 ATPs. Okay? So metabolizing fat gives you a lot of ATP energy. So it's a, it's a very valuable energy source. Um, but it's got some issues related to its metabolism. But just for now, remember that ATP comes in uh, aerobically, aerobic metabolism of fats, comes in as acetyl-CoA, okay? 129. 129 from palmitate. 
Okay, and as we know, proteins are, are actually, it's more appropriate to talk about amino acids because, you know, proteins are complex structures that are made up of the building blocks, amino acids. We have 20 different amino acids, all of which can be metabolized, some of them much more readily than others. What I've done here is given you two examples, uh, one up here, alanine, and one down here, isoleucine, is an example. And, and protein metabolism is, is a lot more complicated than either carbohydrate or fat metabolism just because there's 20 different amino acids and they can plug into uh, the Krebs cycle in different places. Okay? And so these are two examples. Um, alanine can plug into the Krebs cycle as um, pyruvate. Okay? We deaminate it, so we strip off this nitrogen group right here and we bring alanine in as pyruvate and then take it through the Krebs cycle and we can metabolize an alanine amino acid and get 13 ATPs. Okay. Isoleucine though is a, a slightly different chemical structure and once again after we take the nitrogen group off of it we can take isoleucine in in two, carbon, uh, two carbons at a time and take them in as acetyl-CoA and we can get 38 ATPs from isoleucine. Okay, so there's some differences. But the main point with this is to illustrate our aerobic metabolism can be fueled by either carbohydrates, fats, okay, or proteins. And so what we'll do on Tuesday is start to take each one of these in turn and talk in, in more detail about carbohydrate, fat, and protein metabolism um, and how we might manipulate those or how they might influence our, our um, exercise capability. Okay? So, got a break. Done early today. We're right, right on schedule, so. Wait, question. It's just about uh, Tuesday's lecture. Do you think that you'll have that posted? It is posted. I... I, I took the recorder and uh, just stuck it in my uh, 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 computer bag and completely forgot about it, so I did it this morning. Cool. So it's up there. Tuesday's lecture is up there. And we have a quiz on next Thursday, right? Uh, quiz next Thursday, yep. So our next quiz number two will be next Thursday. And we're right on schedule with the material.